Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is it like really hot or is it like It's lukewarm? warm. It's, it's like a bath, but it's sort of, you know, gloopy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a word. It's, uh, gloopy. <laughs> it's not unpleasant, you know. At the end of the day, it's a hot tub. There's plenty of heavy news out there this week. The usual American slurry of voter suppression, mass shootings, and rampant wildfires. But let's pivot away from that for a minute and go back to a hotel room in central Moscow, where I shared some mini-bar white wine with one of my most trusted editorial consigliers, Roads and Kingdoms editor Alexa Van Sickle. We talked about her homeland of Austria, about whiskey made on glaciers, doctored sweet wines, and gloopy beer baths in Tyrolia. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. We're on the fourth floor of a very, very design-focused hotel in Moscow. Right now, we're about 100 feet away from the um, Victory Day celebrations. And we're in Russia because we are doing some fact-finding for our new city guides, which will be St. Petersburg and Moscow. There's literally like a million people on Tverskaya, which is right on the corner where we are. And you really can't hear much. A lot of hammer and sickles out there. A lot of cool Putin t-shirts. It's all a little unnerving. So I'm happy to be kind of holed up here talking about Austria. You live in Austria, and you wrote this amazing piece that was... Uh, something of a farewell to the country. We had talked last year about having a, a series of road trips. And since I was in Austria sort of temporarily and I was about to leave again after, you know, getting to know it as an adult probably for the first time. Like I left when I was 17. So really what, what fell to me was try to figure out a theme of what can you write about Austria that's not super newsy and not super about chocolate cake. Or classical music. Actually, my first idea was to try to trace the borders uh, because Austria is one of those funny countries where wherever you are in a country, it sort of absorbs the flavor of the country it's next to. So there's bits that seem like Italy and there's bits that seem like Germany and Slovenia. And so I realized also that most of the country's borders are actually 3,000 meters up in the Alps, so that wouldn't have worked for a huge portion of it. <laughs> right. You have, I guess, an unusual Austrian story. You are not yourself Austrian? No. Essentially, my immediate family are from Austria in the sense that we were all born there. My parents met there in the 1960s. And, well, it's kind of random. They weren't really supposed to be there either. My mother was a South African student in biology genetics who had been to Germany and then sent to, I think she got a job in Austria working at the medical school and doing research. And so she was hanging out there, you know, checking out Europe. We seem to be descended from people who escaped to the new world and then decided they really liked the old world and came back. Hmm. So my father's people, for example, were longtime Ontarians from Canada, uh, originally from the Netherlands, and then they sort of came back 
the generation before him and hung out in Romania for decades. Went from Toronto to Romania? Yeah, from southern Ontario, so near Sarnia. I love the idea, by the way, of old world people who go to the new world, make a life for themselves, and they're like, actually, you know what, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> let's, go, let's go elsewhere. Um, well, I think what's, what's funny with the Van Sickle clan, you talk to these Canadians who, you know, looking at Romania and Eastern Europe, like, yeah, this is where it's at. And then both times getting expelled by a <laughs> continental war. <laughs> right, by ungrateful occupiers. And this terrible timing. So you were born in Austria. Yes. Um, and spoke English at home. Spoke English at home. Uh, my parents were very adamant that we all become hugely fluent in German. So we all went to, you know, state Austrian kindergartens. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there was a time in my life that I probably spoke better German than English. Yeah. So what does it mean then to be, I, I think you put it in your piece, uh, Austrian-ish? Do you feel like an outsider? Are you relieved from the burdens of giving too much of a shit about Austrian politics and... You know, not just fully not Austrian, but not really fully British either, because although that was our nationality, we didn't grow up there. I like to think that I've not really felt Austrian ever, because we were always just, you know, this English-speaking family. We're a nation unto ourselves. But it's not unusual to be from somewhere else and live somewhere for a while. But we are unusual in that we were in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. We were not posted there. We were not somewhere in between. And I think that having f a foot in several nationalities gives me, it gives me the right to be offended <laughs> on multiple levels or also to not care. I've never understood the idea of, having a nationality or a nationalism and but I've always felt at home being in between and I think that's why maybe I am drawn to places like Canada or the US where everyone's a little bit from somewhere else mm. and thus the cycle begins again yeah exactly <laughs> a van sickle returns to the new world um, only to have uh, you know future generations look around and be like ah, let's go back to Europe man our generation grew up the first thing we learned was you know about the war and also the school we went to, we went to school with a lot of international kids from everywhere, you know, not just from the rest of Europe, but from Nigeria, Pakistan. You couldn't have a better background for really drilling into you that nationalities are arbitrary and not useful, at least for forming your opinions about someone when you're six years old. Again, it's like I just have to point out the extreme irony of this very correct opinion uh, in my in my view that you have being expressed uh, a full 100 meters from about 500,000 Russian flags, Soviet flags, cool Putin t-shirts. It is alarming, not just because of the Austria connection, but we are taught from a young age to be very suspicious of ostentatious flag waving, you know, which is obviously something that happens in a lot of places, but it's felt strange. To be honest, you know, in terms of how I feel being Austrian-ish, I think it's given me a real insight into being European, like growing up on the continent and having these neighboring countries that are different, but you still kind of understand how they work. And when you go to the UK, which is, you know, from, a, from the US perspective in Europe, but really isn't. Mm. You know, it's completely different in the mindset. And, you know, obviously we're seeing this now with Brexit and all that, that kind of stuff. So I would say that being Austrian-ish makes me feel European, but not necessarily Austrian. So I was sort of fascinated by this idea because I think I often have that feeling in a slightly different way. I mean, you're thinking about leaving Austria for 
an extended period of time, and you've been back there now how many years? I'd say it's off and on about two years. A road trip is like kind of that way to run your mind over the features of a country, and that's basically what you wanted to do in, in Austria, sort of like, let me remember this place, probably learn a little bit about it before I head out. I think you had a very sensible approach, which is let's do this road trip as a series of different kinds of alcoholic beverages, right? I'm very lucky that I managed to find something on the sort of whiskey front. And the, <laughs> I mean, beer, beer is everywhere in Europe. You weren't going to be able to do the, uh, the Austrian mezcal crawl uh, with, no, with no. any credibility. What they do have is a, um, there's a, a substance called most, which is essentially the um, fermented wine, before, grape juice before it's wine. Ooh. But beyond grape juice, it tastes like grape soda, but it's actually pretty alcoholic. And it's very dangerous because people underestimate how much they're having. But there is a, such a thing as the most corridor for pears and apples. But it was the wrong season. Okay. So I couldn't do that. I did want to write about wine because that's the geography that I know. I mean, that's where I grew up. I grew up in a part of Vienna that produces wine. You know, my, my life was very much dictated by that. That's what people did at certain times of year. The first restaurant I ever went to probably was one of those wine taverns. It's been there for centuries. And we had very good family friends who were actually from a wine-producing section as well, about an hour west. And so we used to go pick wine with them. And they were from a very small town where they were not actually full-time winemakers anymore. But this town of 2,000 people, almost every family had vineyards left or a really old wine cellar because uh -huh. it's that kind of place yeah. where... It's just in the fabric of their lives. Yeah. And so that, to me, was Austria. All right. Well, let's start with the wine then. So you were in the neighborhood, and this is something that's actually, that you've taught me that's quite special about Vienna. It's the only capital city in Europe that has, like, winemaking within its I think, city limits. I think the official line is that it's the only one with a significant amount of wine produced in its city limits. Okay. And that's 700 hectares. I think you are, you would find some places in Germany and Switzerland that do, but it's not yeah. to the same scale. I don't want to drink Berlin wine. <laughs> so they have two parts. So then northwest and northeast, which are actually at the very, very end of the Alps. If you look at a map, a relief map of Alps, the very, very last sort of hill just stretches into Vienna. And that's where the wine is. So it grows on these sort of hills up above Vienna. And, well, I, I wanted to sort of talk about wine at some point, but I'm just lucky that there was some beer stuff going on and some whiskey stuff going on, too. Austria had, it's got a unique moment, I guess, in its wine history because it had some, some crises in the past. Right. What was that about and, like, how does that affect what, what's happening with Austrian wine these days? In the early 80s... The fashion for wine was to have very, very sweet table wines. Whose fashion? Germany and Austria. I think mo the biggest consumers of Austrian wine were the Germans yeah. back then. Biggest consumers of Austria also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have a history. Um, and so I think what ended up happening is they had a, a few bad harvests where they couldn't make the wine sweet enough. And some chemist, you know, very enterprising dude in Vienna had figured out that glycol which is a, an ingredient in antifreeze, could make the wine sweeter. Now, I don't think he, he meant to do, you know, wholesale poison an entire industry. I think he, I don't think he was aware of the health issues. But, but yeah, so it was him and a few other people, and it became this huge network of wine doctors, essentially, who had been doctoring wine for years, and then it actually reached pretty high up into 
um, local government and stuff. So the town that I mentioned earlier where my friends are from, their Felsenbagram, their mayor was one of the ringleaders. Huh. I'm not a chemist. I, I don't know what glycol sounds like another kind of sugar, but it's it's a bad sugar. It's a bad sugar. It's something that you don't want in your wine. Yeah. I love that this is the fucking problem. It's like they could not make their wine sweet enough, which to me is like not a problem at all. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. I'm like... How about you make that wine less sweet, please? That was the market was for sweet wine. They started adding uh, glycol to it, and they basically had this like huge conspiracy mm-hmm. among politicians and winemakers to cover it up. Yeah, and then it came out. A German scientist had started testing the wine, and it all came out quite quickly in uh, July '85, I think it was. So in one week, basically, the Austrian wine industry was destroyed. They had to destroy, you know, millions of bottles. No shit. Yeah. Just the streets ran red. You know, Germany had been consuming this wine, so it was mostly Germany that shut down the the market. But they were pissed. They were not happy about it. No, because a lot of the a lot of German wines had been doctored to Austrians. Wine for export to Germany. Yeah. I mean, hey, listen, not to dwell on the war. They've done worse. Um, but that's, that does, does not excuse poisoning their wine in, no. uh, on a mass scale in 1980s. So, I mean, the way that I was told by someone I interviewed in the piece, so Alvin Jurcic, who uh, makes wine now, he said about maybe half the people in that area had been involved in the wine scandal somehow, oh. had been doctoring their wines. Yeah. And everyone else did not and did not make a lot of money. So they were really struggling. But because the guy, you know, this mayor had been one of the ringleaders, it was very hard to express your dissatisfaction. Right, with the with fact the way... that you were losing yeah. market share to dudes who were adding chemicals to their wines. Exactly. Huh. Um, I mean, the way he put it was that, you know, once the scandal broke, that really saved Austria's wine, because not only did it sort of level the playing field for everyone who was, not to mix metaphors, but the people who were, you know, not cheating. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but also, they had to stop focusing on sweet wines and they had to sort of start from scratch and start to make really, really good natural wines with no funny business. And they had all this time to do that. So now, you know, the really strong wines coming out of Austria are drier reds and dry whites. I mean, to me, that's a story with a very happy ending. Yeah. I'll say it again. Fuck sweet wine. I'm not a fan either. So that was the wine part of the trip you did. It's a bit of a roadmap for how to experience Austrian wine? Sure. The route that I took around Austria, which was divided into three trips of a few days each, Mm -hmm. I did sort of go from west to east. Okay. Starting from as far away from Vienna as you can get and then coming back. And there is this, there's a really great place to go for wine. I mean, there's a, it's called a Wachau. It's basically a, a few miles along the Danube. And it's just got town after town of hugely historical vineyards and wines and people can quite easily drive that in a day and drink some wine and or you know get a boat on the Danube oh yeah and these are seriously old vineyards like they're famous for being incredibly steep and really uneven sort of really kind of medieval looking and there's castles all over the place as well and this wine stuff this came from the Romans right yeah so I believe that the Celts had been doing something with wine before oh. that, but the Romans really kind of made it into a cultivated product. And I think they imported the wines from Italy. The Danube Valley has been a wine-producing area for a very long time. 
So, all right, get yourself to Vienna, to the Wachau, designated boat captain, and go from winery to winery among all the castles. Done. I'm ready for it. You had two other spirits that were sort of your guide posts for this kind of trip around Austria. You had beer and you had whiskey. Why whiskey and where did you find it? And is it even Austrian? Good question. So I'd been speaking about this trip with a few people, former Austria dwellers who'd maybe left or come back, and someone did bring up whiskey. And I remember seeing a bottle of whiskey in the airport a couple of times and thinking, wow, that's probably pretty nasty. <laughs> I just did some digging, and it turns out there is a very, very, you know, sort of small but blossoming whiskey scene. The whiskey is happening in the forest quarter in the eastern part of the country. That's an actual name. Yeah, so the Austria has these sort of regions of agricultural goodness. So there's like a wine quarter and a forest quarter. Within those sections, this part's famous for making grape juice, and this part's famous for making wine. So the Waldviertel, as they call it, is where all the whiskey action is happening. But it seems to be that most of these places are people who already have a brewery or a schnapps distillery. So uh-huh. the schnapps is the, you know, the really strong fruit brandy that you get from Austria to Romania yeah. and beyond. The whiskey's just really big right now globally, so they've decided to diversify and... Quite a lot of them, it seems, just went to Scotland one time and hung out and really liked it. <laughs> and then, like, I could do that. It's a very human reaction. <laughs> yeah, that was a small thing. And now there's, like, an Austrian Whiskey Association, and they have competitions. But I think the, the, the sort of narrative is that there's this one person called Joseph Heider, I think. So his, his company is JH, okay. who is the really good uh, whiskey producer who started years ago, and everyone else is sort of playing catch-up. He's in the forest quarter. He is in the forest quarter. Probably if you're going to see it any in any stores, it'll be his whiskey, most likely. There is also a little bit of a strange novelty whiskey called Brexit. Like, the whole idea is like, well, here's some whiskey that's not from the UK, so it's Brexit whiskey. And it's like, well, that's not really the vibe you get. Basically, they're saying, no, we're breaking up with Britain. And the whiskey is breaking up with Scotland. And we're like, oh, okay. I think this, this bottle was a fundamental misunderstanding of what, what Brexit means as a hashtag and as a concept um, uh, within Europe and in the UK. Fair enough. Um, Where did you go for your whiskey experience? So it, it was sort of a happy accident that this part around Salzburg, which is sort of like the west center part of the country, and I just happened to find out that this glacier uh, called the Dachstein happened to be distilling whiskey. Okay. And so the, the glacier, like the mountain itself, obviously isn't distilling the whiskey. <laughs> or the people who are operating the ski resort, which is what it is, oh, okay. uh, aren't making the whiskey. But I, I tracked down the whiskey producers, Got it. which were about an hour away, uh, which is a really, really small farm halfway up a mountain. And they are taking water from the glacier. Their entire farm operates on water that's just siphoned directly from the mountain. But they are also, I mean, there's a thing in Austria that's very common word, which is an alm, which is essentially a, a farm that's sort of in the mountains, and often it's a sort of self-sufficient, you know, farm-to-table operation and also has hotel beds. Mm. So often they'll have animals, but it's a huge, huge destination for tourists. They come and have some of that alpine goodness, yeah. and they'll go to the alm and you have beer. Often you'll find people who have a working farm are also in the tourist business. Right, so they're farming in the summer and then basically opening some ski 
some ski runs in the in the winter. And that's how it started out. Um, and so this is a family of four that just uh, have been making schnapps for years. So they've been doing it not for very long, so yeah. about eight years. For some reason, they decided, hey, let's see what happens if we put single malt in a glacier for five years. And single malt in a glacier. Yeah, so they've got some barrels distilling inside the glacier underneath the ice. Okay. And we're in year two of a five-year experiment. So that seems a little gimmicky. I found so, a little bit. But working with, like, glacial water is interesting. Yeah. Every water company on Earth says that they are coming straight from a glacier. But in this age of global warming, maybe we have some, like, really old, interesting water that's coming to us because it's been frozen for since the Ice Age, and now it's, uh, it's coming back. Were they excited about ancient waters? Oh, I, for sure. I mean, this is the thing about, you know, the birthright of people who live in Austria's mountains. I mean, they, they expect nothing less than ancient glacial water. Got it. They've been doing brandy for years. They have all kinds of hazelnut and plum and all that kind of, you know, all those usual flavors. But they are now doing whiskey. And I think they actually make more money with the whiskey now than they do with the sort of family business. That is the globalized tastes. Although, I, in fairness, like, I've, I've lived in schnapps countries. I could be a schnapps fan if, if I was so inclined. I'm not. I mean, they can be incredibly great for just getting fucked up. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's some, like, really refined schnapps, but that's mostly what I remember is, like, gas station schnapps. Like, these, like, kind of burning fruit memories that will never leave you, you know? I'd never really drank schnapps growing up because it's not really what you go for as a teenager. But it's such a part of the mountains, you know, it's like after every meal. So I like them a little bit, but I'm not very hardcore with schnapps. Yeah. So, you know, I'll occasionally have a, uh, you know, the apricot one or the hazelnut one. And then I was in Prague a couple of weeks ago and I bought a tiny bottle of Slibovitz. Yes. And it burned my face off. (laughs) (laughs) This family that's up in the mountains uh, making whiskey, you know, like little scrappy whiskey makers. Yeah. So how was the whiskey? It was kind of schnapps-like. <laughs> um, I feel like you were burying the lead there. Um, it was mostly, and it's very young. Yeah, it's burning a little bit. It definitely tastes like whiskey. It, it reminded me a little bit of Sri Lankan Arak, where okay. you're like, okay, well, there's some whiskey to this, but there's also a sweetness to it. So it's sort of a, a whiskey dressed as a bourbon, perhaps, uh, or a rum. That's awesome. This sort of uh, heroic story of their transformation from schnapps makers to uh, to whiskey people uh, is is not yet written. <laughs> no, there are new members of the Austrian Whiskey Association, but, but they really this is really a strategic thing. I mean, you know, they're a small operation, but they you know they their bread and butter is tourists that come through the summer. So I think they are looking at what's going on in the world of whiskey and who comes to Austria and why. And you know, if you can sort of corner that market then, you know, you're probably in a pretty good position. Yeah, so they weren't yeah. just tasting the whiskey in Scotland and thinking, oh, right, nice. They were probably also looking at the infrastructure, the whiskey trail, the sheer amount of people who go on whiskey pilgrimages and thinking, yeah. all right, let's 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 start to add some of this to our, our portfolio. Yeah, they're under no illusions that they could ever be, you know, making Macallan quake in their boots. Yeah. You know, they've, you've got, like, thousands of years versus... 10. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just, it's a good business to be in, booze. And you got to visit the Salzburg region 
I mean, that's the Austria of the imagination. Sure, right? yeah. That's the, the sound of music and the chocolate boxes and there's salt caves. And this is the thing that I remembered from being a kid. And one of the reasons I wanted to, to drive through this landscape, now I had a car, I could look at all this stuff again. Right. And it's really lovely. You know, there's some pretty, pretty crazy views, I think, that in certain other countries might come with a, you know, park entrance fee and a T-shirt. You know, that is just what things look like here. When your day is filled with looking at beautiful things like that, it's, uh, it can be kind of energizing. And it's a pride that you don't remember hmm. until you see it again, I suppose. Yeah. So on this kind of constant lifetime scale of Austrian to not Austrian, this is something that like kind of ticks the meter a little bit like I'm feeling a little Austrian this is uh, great yeah I mean this is what I looked at when I was growing up how long is the drive from from Vienna to that area uh, it's about four hours you know that's a big chunk of the country it is it's like a sort of the it's hard to say half because Austria has this like really long tail in the west and right. in the east it's sort of like ahead but <laughs> you're go you're basically going from the very eastern border to the very western border all right, so that brings us to what is probably my favorite beverage among the three of these, which is beer. Right. This was a tricky one to find. So I have friends who are from Innsbruck who had been living in Australia for a long time and then moved back. And I was like, so what's good in Tyrol? They pointed me to a few sort of mountain lookouts and a suspension bridge. <laughs> and I decided that wasn't really going to cut it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm not um, a... Group. But I think when I found this um, beer spa brewery is when I kind of, I was permitting myself to make it a booze-themed road trip because I had the wine and the beer and I thought, well, right. I could do schnapps. But no, actually, Tyrol is a really interesting place. So that's the very, like, it's almost to the very far west of Austria, but it sort of was this independent-minded place. South Tyrol is in Italy, but it's all German-speaking people because they, their border just got arbitrarily right. bisected there. Yes, yes. Um, and they sometimes make noise that they want to be independent. Right. Tyrol is probably my favorite place to visit in Austria because it is a little different and very beautiful and hugely mountainous. And there's just something a little bit, you know, there's something a little bit different about it to the rest of the country. Innsbruck was actually where I started my trip. So chronologically. Okay. And then from Innsbruck, I drove west to the Terence Valley, which is just one of those really, really ridiculously pretty alpine views that you might see in a postcard. So you were in the Terence Valley? Yes. And what did you find there? Well, I found a very old brewery called Stackenberger, which has been brewing for a couple of hundred years, maybe 500 years uh, maximum used to be run by women only. It was a castle for these knights that used to rule that part of Tyrol. And eventually it passed into the hands of a wealthy widow huh. who passed it into someone else's hands. So it wasn't, it wasn't by any means supposed to be a woman brewery. It was Got just it. that's how it went for a long time. And um, in 2009, the uh, current owner bought it. And he's a dude, so... That ended, but they're not a huge operation either. They are starting to make whiskey too. They had all these really atmospheric fermentation tanks in the basement of their medieval castle, and I think they just said, "Let's make this into a beer spa." And beer spa. Yeah. Um, S P A. Yes. So what does that mean? What is a so beer spa? Essentially, it means that you are 
there are these sort of large tanks, maybe 14 square feet, that used to hold the beer. Uh-huh. And now they fill that with water, and then they will take about a month's worth of brewer's yeast and put it in the water, and then you jump in the water. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And I think you can... The idea is that it's like a, a large group might do it for a celebration. Okay. Um, but then you sort of sit in this beer broth. <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be really good for your skin. Really? It doesn't give you like an athlete's foot? I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe if you do it all the time. Okay. I mean, it's a strange concept. Uh, Go on your own uh, on your own recognizance, uh, dear listener. It's a hot tub, and the room is a lot cooler than what you'd usually get. Like it looks cooler. Yeah. I mean, yeah. your beams are ancient, uh-huh. and there are old murals that look like they could be really old, but they're really just a, a modern artist who did them. And you go in with your bathing suit. Yeah, well, I would I would say that it's not expected that people do that. Okay. It's not it's not exactly taboo to wear bathing suits in a sauna in Austria, but it kind of is. So you, you don't in, want to be that person. You go in naked. I would say that the idea is you come with a bunch of friends and you all hang out there. Naked. Um, yes, which is what people do in the sauna anyway. But there's also a unlimited beer tap. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's um, also great because uh, drinking a lot of beer in, in a hot tub. Is... So I think I think the idea was also that it was a package deal because they also have this really big cavernous medieval dining hall. Okay. I and mean, we're talking 400 seats. So Got I it. I think the idea is they want to have a wedding and then you get like 8, 20 people to have a beer spa as well. And they did tell us that, you know, this was a conscious effort to – make use of a space that was really not being used at all. Yeah. And they do get a lot of bachelor parties. Yeah, Like okay. people come over from the U.S. to do this. But I know I know they have beer baths in Prague where you sit in a bathtub with uh, a tray and a beer and you're bathing in actual beer. But like they real are real beer, not just water with yeast. Yes. Loop. So beer, beer. But that is just a bathtub. My guide pointed out this is the first of this size. This is full immersion. They're very proud of having the largest kind of gloop spa. Yeah, if it sounds like I'm a hater, it's because I'm, I'm a little bit of a hater. I think it sounds a little gross. I mean, or is it something that you're just like, yeah, it sounds weird, but once you do it, it's like amazing. Well, I wouldn't need to repeat the experience for the the yeast part of it. Okay. Uh, I'm a fan of hot tubs, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm a fan of crazy-looking castles. And, you know, they're, they're interesting people. They're... It's definitely an odd thing to do. Mm-hmm. I went to the other side of Austria. It's not very far from me. I think it might be odd to fly over from L.A. to yeah. swim in yeast at right. the bottom of a castle in Austria. But, I mean, maybe that's their target audience. Fair enough. And are there other spa services? She gave me some beer shampoo. Beer shampoo? Did yeah. you try it? Yeah, it's... Not very good. <laughs> Does it look suspiciously like a bottle of beer? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's like sort of like unpleasantly herbal. Uh-huh. It's like may- maybe that was not beer shampoo. Maybe that was herbal schnapps shampoo. <laughs> she gave me the wrong bottle. <laughs> Take it back. Your shampoo is a lot like schnapps shampoo. <laughs> I want beer shampoo. You know, it's still a functioning brewery. Right. That's the thing. Like you, you go there to drink beer and immerse yourself in it if you want. In a warm. And you got a book. You got a book ahead. It oh, gets busy. Oh, really? It's popular. 
it is popular. So I can I can take all of my skepticism and just smoke it because they're they're doing business out there. Well, thank you, Alexa. Thank I, you. I have now two out of three ideas I'm really psyched to do in, uh, in Austria uh, <laughs> next time I get there. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Josie Holtzman and Danielle Roth of Future Projects. Our editor is Roads and Kingdoms, Taffy Mokanyadze. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Shouts, as always, to Dan the Automator for the music and to Adele Rodriguez for the art. Next week, I'll be with J.P. McMahon, one of Ireland's greatest chefs in Galway, talking a lot of shit and drinking elderflower liqueur. We'll meet you there. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.